Hello, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast Week in Review. We're back to Week in Review. And I'm once again delighted to be joined by Felicity McNeil, PSM, Chair of Better Access Australia. Hi, Paul. We have a lot to talk about. That's unusual. <laughs> uh, I got some interesting feedback today. So, as you know, we published a story this morning and I was challenging the primacy of HTA and... Well, feedback's been incredibly supportive. In fact, I, I, I think in the over 10 years that we've been publishing, I don't think I've ever received <laughs> such a, a level of, of feedback, which I think is interesting, but it does reveal, I think, a, a latent a latent concern over the way policy is developed in this area. And I suppose the premise of the article was that we're just doing this... <laughs> completely the wrong way. Mark Butler, less than a month ago, basically said that the system is so clunky that it's leading to preventable deaths, which is something we should all be very concerned about. Well, it's wonderful that he has actually had the leadership to say that. Um, What's been disappointing, and I know you've written about it or talked to me about it, is crickets. No one can hear anybody else saying anything about it. There's a handful of patient groups. I know we at Better Access have been saying, can we listen to what the Minister's saying here and the opportunity it represents? I think if a Minister is saying that a government program is, or decision-making for a government program is leading to preventable deaths, then it should be a national scandal in reality. I mean, it's something that I think we should all be concerned about, but no what I call the HTA institution, which is all the component parts of HTA decision-making in Australia, <laughs> they just sort of bunk it down. It's like that character out of the Terminator, you know, when he gets shot and he just sort of reforms into that figure. That's, what That's HTA. Is. It, that is HTA. It is so impenetrable to criticism. And we're in a situation this week, and I don't, do not want anyone to see this as criticism of individuals. I'm not criticising any individual. I'm criticising an ethos of an institution which has emerged over a a long period of time that people actually think it's a good idea to go into a room, lock the door with experts, all these so-called experts, decide what's best for the system and then come down like Moses from Mount Sinai and present the tablets. I think you made a really important point in your article today. You said HTA systems seek to balance value and patient need. And I guess that's where I disagree because I don't think they ever seek to balance it at all. And I don't think it's ever going to – I think if we go into HTA thinking that somehow we're going to reach a balance, there is always a winner and there is always a loser. And in the HTA system and the way it's operating, the loser is the patient and the winner is the system. The system will always win and at some point they will let the patient in. It's not balanced. There's no equilibrium. There's a piece of the pie and you're getting a really small component of it. And I think that's why you've had a strong response to your article because the conversations that are going on are about perpetuating that rather than actually if I want a system that does balance value and patient need, reforming, tweaking with HTA isn't necessarily a solution. It's actually setting the targets. Again, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. If we do not have a health system led by a federal minister that says, you know, 100 days to access from ARTG to registration, 
if we don't set that standard, if we don't set those KPIs, not KPIs for whether it's 17 weeks through PBAC and six months from the time of a processing agreement is accepted by the department, which is then negotiated through the cabinet, that's all crap. What I want to know is that if something is safe and to use in this country, whether it's a diagnostic, a therapeutic, a medicine, I want to know that my country says then we will get it for you and this is what we'll do. The balance will be not in patient access. The balance will be between the supplier and the purchaser on how you're going to pay and reward that. Stop trying to balance the patient. Put us first. Well, all of these processes that have been talked about are contestable and contestability leads to delay. I mean, let's, HTA is a fault. I mean, the other part of the Moses story is when it came down from the mountain – the Israelites were <laughs> venerating the false idol, the golden calf. And I actually think that's HTA. It's, it's a false idol. We don't trust patients in this system. I think that's fundamentally apparent to me. If you look at a lot of the communication to parents, to, to patients, I did a fantastic interview with the global head of patient advocacy for Pfizer this morning, and she was absolutely amazing and will be publishing that next week, but she very, very clearly articulated what we need to do here and because we've got it the wrong way around. Is that it's the patients who need to be deciding who makes the decisions, who are the experts. And we had a discussion before the podcast about this and, and, and it made me reflect on what I'm talking about, which is when we get a bunch of health economists and clinicians and academics and industry people and a couple of paid consumers in a room and they lock the door, that is not a patient-driven process. I think they should be outside the door and you get about a patient in the room. We trust them to make the right decisions because they will, which is exactly what we do with the NDIA for the NDIS. We've just got it the wrong way around and we need to stop talking down to patients as if it's this sort of client relationship and clearly state that the system is for them, designed by them to serve their interests. And at the moment, all I see is a system that serves the false idol, that is HTA. It is literally like this religion. And I'm not blaming or criticising the individuals. It is the institution and the culture that has evolved over time and got us to this point where it's not caped. So when Mark Butler comes out and says, literally, people are dying because of what you're doing, it's the biggest vote of no confidence you can imagine from a health minister. Everyone just sort of shrugs. <laughs> I don't think it's capable of responding to that because the conversations it has and the way it thinks is in this sort of narrow framework of, if, well, if we can't put it in an ISA, what are we going to do? But I think that's the point about why we need like a genuine policy and, and KPIs, which is about what access in this country to health yep. means. First of all, stop trying to tell me as a patient how and when I can contribute to your process. Yeah. Um, that that's actually how everything goes on at the moment. You think about that HTI International Congress that's on in uh, Adelaide next week and I look at people posting all the stuff on LinkedIn and people are excited because they're invited to talk at it and we're going to do things because all these HDA people are going to tell us how we as patients can contribute to this. Uh, no, I actually think patients should be telling you, and this is where I do support you on this, which is no, you can come and tell participate in our stuff and we'll tell you how and what we need. And when you talk about not criticising any individual, that it's culturally come about, that's right, which is why we need to liberate it because at the moment mm. 
that is all there is. Reform, or sorry, not going to be reform, tinkering with what we have. You need a bold leadership from a minister, from a government to say, actually, this doesn't work for us. So if we tell you where we want to be, you tell us how to get there, which is why at Better Access we've been saying this for years. A hundred days, if I tell you where I want to be, then you can work backwards as to how you get there. But stop trying to tinker with a process that has no intention of ever getting to that moment. You've got to set all these HTAs, all these committees free and say, if I said that I wanted healthcare in this country to reflect what it is that we need for a healthier, more productive society. If I wanted 100 days to any of these particular diagnostics, therapeutics, medicines, devices, how would we do this? Like I said, we've spent the time thinking about it. Patients think about it all the time. So why won't we get that leadership from the government? That's what we do. Set the HTA people free. There is a value in assessing medicines there is a value in yeah, all that they do don't disagree with that but set them three to free to do it differently nobody's saying the government shouldn't get value no one is arguing that the problem is what it's the primacy of an academic theory which is based on economic modeling which is basically educated guesswork and it's i'm sorry it's not delivering scientific obje- or, or objective outcomes and the thing that I really, really, really find detestable is when I hear patients making the case, they are so beaten down by the system. All right, don't talk to me about that. Yeah, and I'll but, get but they but they 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 make the case they make the case against their own interest. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that's really worrying me about the trending you can see about what we're gonna get out of all these processes is we you see words like, you know, unmet need, high unmet clinical need. And that is a real challenge because when you start to do all of that, one of the things that, you know, extends to be is that it's the focus starts to be on if we're going to improve access, we already try and slice and dice it. So we're going to go to unmet need or high unmet need, high unmet clinical need. This is what worries me is that these conversations will take place over the next few months and it will all be on the first innovation, the first in class, which is great. But ask most patients who have taken some of the most commonly used these days immunotherapy drugs for cancer. It wasn't the first indication that was the challenge. It's the fourth, it's the fifth, it's the sixth. Talk to the rare cancers people and the the access they're trying to get. If you suddenly allow this definition place to be done without the real patient community having a conversation in that, we're going to all be stuck the way we are. Again, it's just going to be business as usual and and I don't want that. No, so let's Let's hope that there is some response because we're not going to keep we're – not, we're not going to stop on this. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of conversation about HTA over the next few weeks and for the rest of the year, and we're going to continue to do what we can to hold this system to account because, frankly, and very simply, I can't understand that if, as stated by the Minister, HTA is the problem, how can HTA be the solution? I don't. The idea that we can just sort of tinker with this and make it better is just too stupid for words for me. Is that no? We need to fundamentally rethink this. And the people who've been part of this for such a long time, with all due respect to them and the amazing contribution many of them have made, I, I think it's time for some new voices yeah. in, in this. And those new voices need to be patients, not the ones paid by the Commonwealth and the Department of Health and Aged Care. Actual 
real living patients who engage with and experience the health system on a daily basis. It is. It's a very fine line to you want the experience. We all have a, a lived experience as a patient mm. uh, in the health system, so we can all contribute to that. And I'm not setting that aside at all. And there is a lot of value in understanding how to actually get through the processes of, of advocacy and lobbying in Australia and having watched again LinkedIn. Oof, you know, that, that kind of is is sad to me because I do spend a lot of time working with patients that were too sick to even get to, to Parliament House mm. who are working in different parts of the system and we have to challenge it being the same old, same old, and that includes me. You know, I've been around the system for a while. Me too. I'm not necessarily part of the solution, but I, I can certainly help identify the problem. But I, I, I do think we need some new voices and I, I think – you know, let me be completely blunt. This this system of HDA we, we, we have has been in place since the early 1990s. I think the people who designed the system probably shouldn't be responsible for designing the updated system, the new system. We need We need some new voices. I mean, the idea that we can't have a generational change... I think is uh, well, I think it's disappointing, but th- that's the nature of an institution that's built up an incredible defensive mechanism over an extended period of time. Well, when the APSC does its capability reviews, it doesn't ask the people that are actually running that particular area to review itself. Well, no, well, that's hang on, but that's the HTA model. Now let's <laughs> let's move on. Oh dear! So we're coming to the end of June, and we've—I don't know this for a fact—but what I am hearing is that the long overdue reform of the opiate dependence treatment program, which you and I have been talking about for a long time, is not going as well as it could, and it's yet another example of a change left into the last minute with limited consultation and limited time to respond to that consultation and that response being fundamentally flawed. Yeah, I don't yeah. <laughs> um, look, it, it has. It's been a tough, tough week for a lot of people who are working hard and, you know, it's better access. We've written to the Minister saying, please, there's some things you need to do here urgently uh, to try and rectify this last minute. You know what? It's not going to be a train wreck because the pharmacists, the GPs, the specialists, the wholesalers, the suppliers of the medicines will not let patients down. They never do. And they will turn heaven and earth to make sure that people get their medicines on the 1st of July in the way that the government is intending. And I think there is a very unhealthy and unkind reliance on that goodwill by the bureaucracy to allow them to just, you know, wash their hands of it and say, well, you know, we did what it is and it's all just last minute, blah, blah, blah. We asked all along for dual listing of Section 85, Section 100 for these medicines to make sure that wholesales were properly remunerated, pharmacy was properly remunerated, access wherever it needed to be could be happened. And as we've all read that report, it kind of just ignored. It said it had to be one or the other and it shouldn't have been. We know we've got issues here now where GPs who are working literally on the streets to to reach out to people in the community who might need help are struggling with how they have access to the medicines. If you'd read the report, if you discussed it properly, you would have known that putting this in the, the, the prescriber's bag was an essential part of the implementation of this measure to make sure that opportunistic treatment can always take place in this country. When we've got the issue here right now that because it's taken people so long to work out that there were non-PBS 
sites dispensing PBS medicines, that we're going to have a two-speed access program again, which is those that go through community pharmacy and those who continue to pay out-of-pocket private fees, and in particular states and territories where we have limitations on how many people are allowed to be treated. And then finally, we're going to have places like the ACT, where the $377 million investment in the opiate program has been seen as a reinvestment of the money that's been taken from 60-day dispensing. Yet, as you've pointed out before, not only was it coming from a different funding source, pharmacies here are going to be paid less than they were already being paid by both the ACT government and the patients. And so you're not only taking money away from them for 60-day dispensing, you're taking money away from them for for what they were already doing, which was opiate dependence treatment. That sounds like a whinge, and it is, because these are all things that were identified in the draft Two report. years ago. They were identified two years ago in the consultation yeah. process, and they've only only been properly identified with a solution worked on in the last couple of weeks. And that's because everybody's been saying, you know, can we help? Bring everybody into the room. This divide and conquer approach of we'll meet with one group, then we'll meet with another group, then we'll meet with another group, playing them off against each other. We, we don't need to do that. That whole system wants to work together to achieve it. And like I said, so grateful to Minister Butler for actually fixing this program. Really disappointed that once again, what should be seen as an extraordinary success is now mired in all this mess, concern and fear because we started to send out fact sheets three days ago and even that doesn't have sufficient well, information. I'm going to come back to Mark Butler in a second, but it is another example of a reform poorly implemented. It seems to be, certainly in relation to the private clinics, the intention is to force these this one group of patients to continue to pay uncapped private dispensing fees with a view to forcing them into official PBS or state programs. Government, these are people trying to recover from opiate dependence. These are very vulnerable patients. They go to these clinics. They've probably been going to them for a long time. They trust them. Because they trust them. All of the feedback, including the focus group feedback, was that they're less stigmatised. They feel safer in these private clinics. And the idea that they can just, oh, well, we'll just go off and find somewhere else. These private clinics have served have emerged over the years because of a void, there mightn't be options for them, particularly in states that cap the number of patients that can say, please have some humanity. Now, Mark Butler, I'm just going to say to you, Mark, we've had this, we've had the PL, we've had the catch-up price reductions. You have staked your political life on 60-day dispensing. In fact, you've just issued a press release saying how fantastic it is. I'm telling you, Mark, the people responsible for stuffing up all of these other reforms are going to be implementing this one. Just think about that. All of the problems caused by all of these other, other, other issues, it's all the same area and it's all the same people. Now, I don't want this to be seen as criticism of the individuals. I'm just saying, Minister, you have staked your political life on this reform. The successful implementation of this reform relies on the people who hate it the most, and I and I just think I just think I, there's a lot of goodwill around the ODTP and that change. And you will, your government will bumble through this reform because of the goodwill of the supply chain and the desire to support these patients who have been so mistreated over the years. It's not fair. It's not. It's not fair. 
you're probably not going to have the same goodwill <laughs> with sixty with sixty days. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, <laughs> you've still got time to sort this out. So almost a sort of left field issue, Felicity, is the uh, and it's something that's been bubbling away in Canberra, which is where you and I are, which is the ACT government's decision to compulsorily acquire a public hospital that's run by a private organisation. Yes, it's very controversial. And the Senate has asked some questions this way. It has. And look, uh, full disclosure, as you know, my, my mum's in Calvary. She's also been in TCH. So, you know, I'm That's very – the Canberra Hospital. Ex- the Canberra Hospital. I'm very experienced mm. with both health systems. This is an example of where I am a local constituent and I want to know where the consultation was with me about taking over the hospital – that so many Canberrans love, respect, so many fantastic doctors and nurses. This was just done and I got a pamphlet from Andrew Barr in my my letterbox saying, hey, good news, we're taking this over, we're going to build something in the long term. It's done, been done quickly. It's been done without adequate consultation. And well, there's no consultation. Yeah, all, it's really. just – There's not just, even an inquiry in the ACT. No, there's not. There is no – true transparency in what is going on here and there's the principle of what it means for other private, privately run uh, places, institutions. But it was great to at least uh, – there's a debate going on in the – well, was in the Senate about whether there should be an inquiry into the way that the ACT government has done this acquisition and I know that was rejected, but I know now know that the private members' bill by Senator Canavan oh. is being considered as to whether um, they should be made to do an inquiry into it. It's what you and I talk about all the time. This is my health system. This is my health care. Why are we all sitting back? Is it because Canberra's full of bureaucrats and we go, whoa, that's awesome, this is the way we would like to do consultation and do things in programs anyway? Yes, they look at it rather jealously. <laughs> and go, oh, 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 no, we've done something even better yeah. uh, in our announcements, i.e. 60-day dispensing. It's, it's a really important issue and it's a fundamental pre- issue that anyone who works in constitutional law, general law, states versus territories, but most importantly, a health system. You're, you're taking over our hospital, a hospital that is loved and respected in this community and no correspondence will be entered into. Well, and let's let's just think about it. The Australian Constitution does permit the compulsory acquisition of assets. It does. But it, but it has to be on just terms. It's a very unusual thing when it happens. Yes, Mr and, Kerrigan. <laughs> well, and it's often in relation to things like infrastructure. Calvary will have to be compensated, but there's no indication yet of what, what, what that will be. But... It is. It is just another example, isn't it? I, I just find it. It's not funny because people will suffer the consequences of this. But the idea that the government can that you've got an established hospital workforce and all the infrastructure around that for people who don't know, this is not a small hospital. It's a large hospital. Yeah. Services uh, two hundred fifty thousand people or something, and half of Canberra. <laughs> the idea that. You just know this is going to be a train wreck, that, that things are going to happen. I did hear someone, in, I think it was the ACT Health Minister last week, saying, oh, we expect to retain retain 85% of the staff. Like, oh, hang on. So you're expecting to lose 15% of the staff. So you're expecting to lose one in six staff members on the day of the acquisition. Uh, this is not a McDonald's franchise. It, it's This is a hospital that you're talking about. It is, and it's an incredibly efficiently run hospital. I mean, if you talk to the doctors around this area and, like I said, I do at the moment because most of them are treating my mum. But the efficiency with which that hospital runs, yeah. the increased number of surgeries they get through, the coordination, the care and the compassion, the the nursing staff, like 
they're fantastic. And these people have suddenly been told there's going to be a website you can reapply <laughs> for your job. Um, It'll be drop down boxes. And, and as someone who has experienced both hospitals and the the way the two systems are run, I do not want the ACT government running Calvary Hospital. No, no. So I it, want it is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And the, the Commonwealth are going to look at the look at this from a very legal perspective. I think it's going to legal and constitutional uh, affairs. Legal yeah. and constitutional affairs. It'd be better off go to a reference committee. But it, it's still going to be interesting. And you just know it's not going to be easy. But as you very rightly described, it's just another example of government knows best. Government yeah. knows best without consulting any patients or anyone who actually works at the hospital or lives and breathes it on a daily basis. And it's just, I don't know whether, it, I don't know what it's a consequence of, but it does seem to be happening a lot lately. Sure is. Felicity, thank you. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about HTA next week. Oh, really? The fact that it's got its own acronym. You know what the thing is? When I write about health technology assessment, I always put HTA in brackets because that's that's what you do. That's the practice. But I almost feel I don't know to because everyone knows what HTA stands for. And that's one of the problems with HTA. It is so institutionalized. You don't even need to explain it to people. Oh, that's what it means. So anyway. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening.